Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, we're kicking off a new mini-series, Let It Roll Nightmares, looking at some of the most scandal-prone musicians we've discussed. Up first, a recast of Nate's 2019 interview with Jerry Lee Lewis biographer Joe Bonomo. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined today by Joe Bonomo, uh, the author of Jerry Lee Lewis, Lost and Found, which he describes as a book um, where that lets others focus on the scandal and delves deeply into the accidental intersection between fading American rockabilly and ascending Beatlemania. Joe, welcome. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, on one hand, I think it means that it's a coincidence in the sense that one error begins, another error ends, as another error begins, and another error ends, et cetera. One of the, one of the, when I was starting to, to write this book about an album I loved, when I started the research, one of the, the wild things I discovered was that on the morning of the night that Jerry Lee Lewis recorded his album at the Star Club, the Beatles were filming the opening scene of their movie, A Hard Day's Night, when they're running down the street in London being chased by the, by the screaming girls. And I thought that was just a perfect emblem for where Jerry Lee Lewis was in his career at that point. On one hand, you know, of course, part of me thinks that's, or knows that that's simply a coincidence, but I also couldn't help but, but sort of read into that or, or be sort of intrigued by that, that as one band was in ascension, and was filming a scene that was soon going to become iconic, a uh, very sort of emblematic, raucous, beautiful, joyous scene of Beatlemania, however staged it was, of course. On that very day, Jerry Lee Lewis was playing for a happy crowd, a crowd happy to see him, a crowd that, that really loved him and at that time and were happy to see him play. But he was essentially a ghost in America at that time. His scandal had dogged him for years. He wasn't selling any records. He was still performing, still gigging, still writing, uh, still re- releasing records, but he was a shadow of himself uh, commercially. So on the day that one band was was exploding into commercial relevance, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis was essentially a ghost. But on that day, he made what is uh, arguably one of the greatest live rock and roll albums of all time. And that album is Jerry Lee Lewis Live at the Star Club. And and he's backed by the Nashville Teens, which was a, a South England beat band that had would go on to have like one massive hit with Tobacco Road. Right. Um, 
and and he's there at the Star Club, which is literally the Beatles' stomping ground. So I, I think that's a perfect metaphor because you know Jerry's career very much from this point throughout the rest of the sixties is going to take place in the shadow of the Beatles. And yet there's this, this brief window in time when not just Jerry Lee, but also Chuck Berry, who's getting out of prison and about to enjoy another round of hits and and do his first tours of England and little Richard who had just uh, played the star club in Liverpool actually uh, headlined over the Beatles, I think in both locations, definitely in Liverpool, if not in the star club. So there's this brief window when the original rock and rollers are enjoying a resurgence that's in part fueled by the Beatles and the Rolling sure. Stones and others obvious passion for them, but also they're about to take this hard fade. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I totally found the book fascinating and, and it's a great, great album. If you haven't heard it, the, the live at Jerry Lee Lewis live at the star club is absolutely one of, of the best rock and roll albums ever made, but let's talk about Jerry Lee quad Jerry Lee to get started, like the the legend, the myth, the reality. Jerry Lee's always been probably the most problematic of the first wave of rock stars. You've got a great quote from the great Nick Toshis. Um, of all the rock and roll creatures, Jerry Lee projected the most hellish persona. He was feared more than the rest and hated more too. Preachers railed against him. Mothers smelled his awful presence in the laundry of their daughters. And young boys coveted his wicked, wicked ways. I mean, that's pretty much the appeal of Jerry Lee and the, and the downside right there in one beautiful sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, no, you go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I, 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 I mean, the, the, the Tosh's, uh, uh, quote, and of course his great book, Hellfire does capture that perfectly. I mean, in a sense that it really is almost too perfect going back to what you mentioned earlier about, uh, uh this great live album, which has stand, stood the test of time and will, being recorded at the Star Club where the Beatles had sort of formed, there was so many perfect, almost too good to be true intersections of, of what Jerry Lee meant at one point and then what the Beatles were going to mean very, very soon. But when you think of Jerry Lee Lewis's career up to that point, it almost seems inevitable that he was going to burn out. You know what I mean? He was such a raucous performer. He was uh, always lived on to the margins of, or I should say, the extremes of his experiences, uh, not only playing rock and roll, but drinking and starting drug use that, that began that crested really in the 1960s. It makes the kind of sense that he would that he would that he would burn out that that kind of man kind of lit from within with that that fire to testify to rock and roll was was eventually going to come crashing down, which makes that record all the more remarkable when you consider that he was really at a kind of a low point, not just commercially, but but also emotionally, I think psychologically too, uh, really kind of playing in the shadow of these bands that were, a lot of them, covering his songs, citing him as one of the great influences in their music, but absolutely leaving him in the dust in terms of uh, record sales and, and commercial relevance. Yeah, and he'd not only been exiled uh, basically from the pop marketplace in the U.S. since uh, 1958, but he'd also lost his son tragically in 1962. Yeah. And, yeah, and, I mean, just one of a one of a of a series of, of sort of shattering emotional uh, uh, incidents and 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 devastating kind of personal problems for Jerry Lee. Sure. Yeah, and and I think with Jerry Lee, he's such a force and so palpably charismatic and talented, and also he tended to project his problems outward. I mean, he was you know not only did he marry his thirteen year old cousin, he was an abusive husband possibly an abusive father, 
um, he tended to project his negativity outwards. So people have very little sympathy for Jerry Lee right up to this day. And, and yet he's this incredibly talented, gifted artist. You, you have a great quote from Sam Phillips um, about Jerry Lee saying he's an extremely talented human being. I'm not talking about just the voice, piano, any one thing. The guy has a photographic memory, an instinctive quality of relating to every type of song that you can think of, from pop to the lowest blues. It's a shame he doesn't have anyone to direct his talent. He's one of the century's great talents, but he feels a lonesomeness in his talent, extreme lonesomeness for somebody to be strong around him. Elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, what do you think? It, I mean, I guess we can't fathom what it's like to be that talented and that alone. No, no, we can't. And in fact, that's one of the, the, the things that the, the Beatles always remarked upon, that they were grateful that they had each other in the band. Whereas these early guys, Elvis, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, they were alone, essentially. They were they, they only had themselves. They didn't have an equal in the band next to them. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, someone equal to their to their talents and to their gifts. So yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis was very much alone. But you're absolutely right that he did project his negativity outward, and he is a difficult person to sympathize with. And so there's always that sort of disconnect between recognizing a person's <clears throat> innate immense talent. I mean, the, what, what Jerry Lee Lewis can do with the Great American Songbook, what he can do with blues, what he can do with pop and country and rock and roll and ragtime and swing, just sitting at the piano, lesser these days now, of course, as his, as his, his energy is, is fading. But when he was at his peak, is remarkable. I mean, there truly was no one like Jerry Lee Lewis at the piano, no one. And his ability to interpret songs, to stamp them with his own personality, his outsized personality, his remarkable piano playing. Uh, so you, 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 can, you can acknowledge that, you can respect his talent, you can marvel at his talent, but at the same time, there's a disconnect between that and the kind of man he is, the kind of person he is or, or, or was. And that brings up the age-old problem of the pleasure principle, right? I mean, you can love a song instinctively, you can love the music that a person is creating, but if the person who's creating it is problematic, is a difficult person to, to, uh, to be with or to sympathize with, who's done some awful things in his life, well, where does that leave you? You know, it, I don't think that one side negates the other. So it's a really, really complicated place, I think, really complex place. And has your, cha- has your thinking changed on that? I mean, you wrote this book a few years back, and obviously we've been through the whole uh, Me Too phenomenon in the last couple of years. You wrote it in, t- in 2009, 10 years later, in the context of Me Too and things like Surviving R. Kelly. Has that changed your thinking about Jerry Lee at all? It, it, I don't know that it's changed it, but I certainly have done quite a bit of thinking uh, about it. And I do think that if I were to write that book now, if I were to begin that book now, I might have a slightly different angle on it. I might perhaps hesitate a little bit more or at least recognize that the, the, the waters uh, are, are very much muddied up. I think the big difference is that uh, I, I, 10 years ago, I might've thought that if Jerry Lee Lewis were living or, or had these, these, these so-called scandals happened now and with social media and with the, the way that it would have been trumpeted around the world and his, his accusers and his victims would have had rightful say uh, in, in terms of their, their sides of things. He might have gone on a so-called redemption tour. He might have apologized to the right people on the right social media platforms and the right venues. And he might have been, uh, quote unquote, forgiven by some circles. I don't think that the 
that popular culture is as hospitable to that sort of gesture now, rightly so, I think. And so Jerry Lee Lewis would be in a really, really difficult place now. Um, and it would be uh, difficult for him, I think, to, to uh, shrug out of or away from these kinds of accusations and the, and, and the kinds of um, the problems that I, I talked about a little, little while ago about loving a man's music, but being repelled by the man's uh, behavior. Uh, so, yeah, it certainly affected my thinking, um, but I don't think the issue is any less complex. I think it's more complex now in the in the, the, the Me Too movement. Um, and, and so it's a it's a it's a difficult kind of intersection, I think. Um, and I'm not quite sure where I stand on it. I do think I would uh, approach the book differently, but I'm not so sure I would end up in a different place. And so for those who don't know the Jerry Lee story, let's can you quickly run through the what what was the scandal that that brought Jerry Lee's career, you know, which was red hot. I mean, the guy the guy's first second and third singles went to number 1 and number 2 on not just the pop charts, but also the country charts and the R&B charts, which uh, you know, Elvis and Carl Perkins had done the same thing uh at, at around the same time just a little bit before Jerry Lee, but nevertheless, that's a really unique feat in American pop culture. And then it all comes crashing down in a tour of England because? Well, because it was leaked uh, that he had married his 13-year-old cousin, uh, first cousin, once removed, uh, which uh, despite uh, Jerry Lee's uh, protestations and his family's and friends' protestations that this was something that was much more acceptable acceptable in the deep south in the deep south uh, in mid century. Uh, it was scandalous to many many people, uh, especially in England, uh, where he was really vilified. And that tour, which you're absolutely right, was as as he was ascending. I mean, he was a remarkably popular figure at that point. It really did come crashing down. Now there is is that was the that that's the narrative that certain people needed uh, in order to. To, to reconcile Jerry Lee Lewis with uh, his behavior. Uh, it, to some degrees, that that narrative has been exaggerated over time. Uh, he did lose certain close friends and certain friends uh, in, in, in the industry, chief among them Dick Clark, who was a, had been a big supporter up to that point. It's true that his record sales dipped, but he never stopped releasing records, never stopped touring. And fairly soon after the so-called scandal in 58, he was embraced again by fans in England and across Northern Europe. But in America, certainly he was um, uh, tarred and feathered as the expression goes. And it was really, really difficult for him all throughout the 1960s to regain his commercial footing uh, in part because that that scandal of his marriage, uh, it, it was something, it was it tattooed him in a way that he couldn't rub off. And also I think a point that you bring out in the book is that so much of the power of those early hits comes from his unshakable self-confidence. And you talk about the the single that he cut right after he got back from England, which he had demoed before he left, and and it suffers. It's just not comparable to to the to the early hits because he's lost that confidence. It, it sounds that way, doesn't it? Uh, part of the problem was that 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 I don't think Sun Records really knew what to do with him at that point, and so they tried different things. They put uh, they they, they um, put female backup vocalists on his records. They uh, they sat him in front of a bigger band. They put some horns, some brass on some records. They didn't really quite know what to do with him. And I think because of that, because his record label was 
nervous about him. I, I do think that his confidence was shaken a little bit, uh, which makes the recording at, at the Star Club all the more remarkable, I think all the more historic, and, and to me, all the more moving, because here he is finding, regaining that confidence again uh, in, in a show that thankfully for us was wonderfully and properly recorded by by Siggy Locke uh, and 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 released for for posterity uh one of the reasons why that record is so kind of heartening and electrifying to hear now because he did find that that self-confidence again but yeah it 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 took a it took a major hit and it took him practically a decade uh until he started scoring records on the country charts in the late 1960s with a series of really great sort of hardcore honky-tonk records that his confidence came back. But again, I think though, even as I'm saying, and I, I think some of this has been has been exaggerated over time. Um, it's true that he was on shaky ground commercially and personally, but he always has been. Uh, but I do think that Jerry Lee Lewis always believed in himself because he knew how talented he was. He knew how gifted he was. He knew how popular he had been, and he knew that it wasn't just it, that it wasn't something that's just going to disappear overnight. So he was dogged. I mean, he was really, really committed. To not only making money as he had to do to support his, his family, but also to bring to the stage and do crowds what he really believed in. That's the, 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 the beauty and the passion and the joy of rock and roll. So he never really lost his confidence entirely. But certainly his records uh, reflected a kind of a, a lukewarm approach to how the hell did we record this guy? How do we capture that magic again? Yeah, and and it's I think important to point out that he also had six long, hard years on the road uh, between... Yeah. Uh, you know the '58 collapse of his career and and the recording in the Star Club and and tell us a little bit about that. You go into the the one night stand aspect and how he had to completely rebuild his career. You know he had gone from making ten thousand dollars a night, which is an incredible amount of money in the late '50s, uh, to playing to barely being able to sell out clubs, and yet he he stayed on the road and rebuilt his circuit. Yeah, that, that that's something that I, I'm almost perversely interested in in terms of other books I've written too and. And, and and kind of artists that I'm interested in. It's 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 interesting to read about someone who's on the top commercially and in terms of fame. But I find it equal, if not more interesting, to look at those artists when they fall. I don't mean in the sort of the um, only the the traditional sort of behind the music narrative arc that we all know so well. But but what do you do when you've been on the top and you're now down at the bottom, figuratively speaking, in perhaps a somewhat exaggerated sense? But you still believe in yourself and you still need to make money and you still want to do what you want to do. Well, Jerry Lewis never gave up. He could have. I don't know that he has it in himself to give up. His ego is far, far too large to let anyone dictate the terms of, of the way he lives his life um, professionally as well as personally. But, yeah, he really did have to sort of begin again at the bottom, uh, playing these one night stands, series of one night stands and in, in, in absolutely out of the way towns and well, from coast to coast, really, in America, in in, uh, in in middle America, these supper clubs in front of a dozen people. And it must have been galling to him. It must have been humiliating and a little embarrassing. But at the same time, Jerry Lee Lewis recognized, I'm sure, that he was partially responsible for his downfall. And if he truly believed in himself as an artist and as a commercial artist, he was going to uh, he was never going to give up. And he didn't. And so it was a long, long haul uh, in America, at least. But again, he did. He was received again fairly you know with open arms in in England and uh in in parts of northern Europe and Germany in, in particular and France also fairly soon after the scandal so he was always facing or or he, he could get, he could rely on a pretty good payday when he toured uh England 
and Northern Europe in the early 60s. Uh, so that was nice for him. But in America, it was a slog, man. It really was, frankly, until, until the late 60s. And at one point you, you made there about Jerry Lee blaming himself for this. And I think it's important to reference the classic dialogue that he had with Sam Phillips before he was recording um, Great Balls of Fire, where Phillips is trying to argue that there's a redemptive power to rock and roll. And Jerry Lee is insisting that it's the music of the devil. And, and I think it's important to understand Jerry Lee to understand that Pentecostal morality that that if you're if you're fallen at all, then you're completely fallen, and that a lot of people like Jerry Lee and his cousins, uh, Jerry, Jimmy Swaggart and Mickey Gilley, both you know the same morality issue, where you know once you cross that line into the lost, basically anything goes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so so uh, Jerry does seem pretty unrepentant about the drug use, the violence, you know, not only uh, against his wife and possibly children, but, you know, he shot a band member at one point and was unapologetic. I mean, and yet he's this tortured soul, but his definition of of sin is so broad that includes things like playing rock and roll music. and, And, you know, as long as I'm damned for playing rock and roll music, I might as well, you know, take all the meth in the world and <laughs> hurt anybody that comes across my path. So it, it's, it's, I think hard for a lot of people who don't understand that background to understand Jerry Lee Lewis at all. I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. That, 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 that epochal conversation between, between Lewis and, and Phillips is one of those sort of, you know, moments in pop culture that, that it's really hard to, to, uh, to exaggerate the importance of and the significance of in not just not just recognizing the inherent contradictions in Jerry Lee Lewis, but also the the sacred versus the profane qualities of any kind of human expression, I think, regardless of whether you're a believer or not. But yeah, certainly Jerry Lee Lewis's Pentecostal upbringing, born sinning, born sinned, born to be saved, uh, that was at odds with his really, really fierce physical bodily desire to make and to play rock and roll. I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, neither side can negate the other. And here we have a classic example of that with Jerry Lewis, who, from all accounts, I've never met the man, I've never spoken to him, but everything I've read him say and hear him say, he's very much a believer now to this day that his faith hasn't wavered. So think about that. Think about a person's uh, sort of faith not wavering at the same time that he is feels in his DNA, in his bones, you know, in his, in his, in his blood that he was born to make this music. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that? I don't know that you do. Uh, and I don't think he, he Jerry Lewis ever really believes that he can. So it, it, it has created a, a fascinating contradiction and complex character that despite the, the, the likely pain and suffering that's caused Jerry Lewis as a believer it certainly has been something that's fueled his rock and roll and given millions and millions of us a lot of pleasure. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to sort of recognize in that regard, but yeah, it's crucial to understanding the push and pull of the, the, the principles that, that Jerry Lewis lives on a day-to-day level. And I think another thing that we should bring up before we turn our attention to Hamburg and the star club is the deep southernness of Jerry Lee and also his close relationship 
not only to African-American music, but to African-Americans. I mean, this was a guy who grew up in poverty side by side with African-Americans who learned to play piano uh, at a roadhouse where, where African-Americans played the blues and rhythm and blues and swing. And, and, and he and his cousins, uh, Jimmy Swaggart and Mickey Gilly, you know, the three of them at the piano together learning this basically forbidden music at the time. And I think a lot, so much of the reaction, the explosion of rock and roll, not just through Elvis and Jerry Lee and these white guys who were more than just imitators. I mean, these, these guys were not Pat Boone uh, or Georgia Gibbs who were just, you know, aping black songs to try to make a quick buck. These are people who've internalized the music, who had the respect of their African-American peers. I mean, there's the infamous stories about Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis touring together and, and, and fist fighting and racial epithets being thrown back and forth. But there's definitely a mutual respect. I mean, when you hear Jerry Lee Lewis talking about Chuck Berry on the Million Dollar Quartet, it's obvious that that not just Carl Perkins and, and Johnny Cash and, and Elvis respect Chuck Berry, but Jerry Lee is leading the band singing the praises of this guy. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, it, it, we have to say, of course, that it must be said that it's Lewis's white privilege that allowed him to, to synthesize these African-American influences and, 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 and provide him with the opportunities to make them commercial and to make a career for himself. And <clears throat> even though he was, Jerry Lee Lewis is famously, uh, um, uh, uh, how to how to put it? Not not terribly generous in citing his influences. I guess is a, a fair way to put it. He has been fairly consistent about uh, the African American influences on him, uh, starting by looking through the window at Big Haney's house in his neighborhood and, and digesting and 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 loving, of course, and respecting and synthesizing uh, all of that music. Um, and 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 yeah, it's it's genuine. There's no doubt about it. And I think a big part of the revulsion and the backlash against Jerry Lee was against him as a as sort of a totem of integration and as a, a product of these Louisiana swamps that were universally viewed uh, in the north of America and in Europe as this backward, primitive, frightening place, sure. uh, a, a hotbed of miscegenation and, and incest yeah. and, and all these taboos. And so Jerry Lee always was sort of tainted by place and culture and lack of education and wealth. And yet was so confident and so in your face about it that, that it not only triggered this huge positive response, but immediately this backlash. But let's get to Hamburg. And and again, I think one of the fascinations with that album and this book is this is this literal meeting point between one of the original generation of rock and roll pioneers from the 50s and his acolytes. Uh, the Nashville teens were a classic you know, case that they weren't obviously one of the great bands. They weren't the Beatles or the Stones or even the Animals or Manford Man, but they were extremely accomplished players who had been hardened uh, by playing in the Star Club, just like the Beatles had. And they're able to hang with Jerry Lee. I mean, that's pretty amazing, if you ask me. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I think one of the one of the great things about this album is that it, it not only shows or it displays, it illustrates again what a great performer Jerry Lewis is, but forever the, the Nashville teams, it must be said three-fifths of the Nashville teams, not the entire band, backed him. Uh, but uh, the, the the drummer, guitarist, and bass player of the Nashville teams who, who backed him uh, will forever be be, be uh, remembered now and, and, and witnessed as a, a really, really great 
rock and roll band for being able to keep up with Jerry Lee. Yeah, again, it was one of these great confluence, you know, just this this timing that uh, that they were the band that backed him on this tour and, and this gig, I should say, and that and that um, uh, Siggy Locke was was at the right place at the right time to record it. The Star Club was just, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning to issue or continuing uh, considering issuing these, these live albums, and they did a few of them. So it was a great, great timing of all of this sort of coming together. Not the least of which being the Nashville teens backing them. Yeah, and you're right; they were uh, they they were never able to achieve the the commercial uh, appeal or commercial level of some of the the so-called British invasion bands. They just didn't have the talent, the songwriting talent in them, but they were a really, really great bruised, muscled rock and roll band. And they were the, they were the perfect rhythm section behind Jerry Lee Lewis that night. Although it was, it was hard for them to keep up, but they did. <laughs> yeah. You, you bring that point home. I mean, Jerry Lee wouldn't even tell him what the set list was going to be. He wouldn't call out the songs. He just started playing and uh, they better keep up. And if you can hear on, on some of the tracks, they 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 start playing just a, a second or, or so past the beginning of the song. So you can it's almost visible on the song. It's a sort of collective recognition among the the band members. Oh, it's 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 money now, and not money because that was that was introduced with the, the riff. But uh, it, you know, it was one of one of Jerry Lee Lewis's early hits. That oh, now I get it. It's this one, and they and they jump in. That that it's in part what contributes to the to just a joyous, reckless kind of off the rails nature of the recording is that I don't know if spontaneity is the right word, but that sort of immediacy of the songs being recognized and then jumped into by all of them. And let's, you know, head down, I'll see you at the end. Yeah. I mean, they're playing with this human whirlwind who's incredibly talented and cutting them no slack whatsoever and just fighting for their lives the whole time. And you can hear it. Uh, palpably, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the way they cut down the songs to the absolute basics. You know, there's yep. no frills, no bullshit. Nope. Um, and 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 yet they hang. I mean, the the drums are tight, the guitar solos are are badass, frankly. Yep. And and yep. it's it's pretty amazing. And I want to I want to come back to the Beatles though because. I think Mark Lewison and his epic uh, works on the Beatles from the Beatles sessions all the way to the tune in book that came out a few years ago has really pointed out the way that the Beatles created an audience that was so big and so hungry for more that they, they essentially created the British beat boom single-handedly, definitely the Liverpool beat boom single-handedly. And I'd have to think that the, the whole existence of a major rock and roll scene in Hamburg had a lot to do with the Beatles having spent so much time there and trained the people of Hamburg to expect top flight rock and roll. I, I would think so. I mean, on the night of, in April 1964, when Jerry Lewis arrived at the Star Club, to, Star Club to play, that wasn't just simply the Star Club. That was the place where the Beatles started. It was almost part of the name of the joint now, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, there's no doubt that when, when in, in 1964, you walked into the Star Club, you knew what you were going to get, in part because the Beatles had prepared you for it. The Beatles had already landed there. They'd stormed the beaches. And now they're this worldwide group of you know, selling records worldwide. But what they never left behind was their love for R&B and American rock and roll, rockabilly, et cetera, even some country, hardcore country. And uh, it, it was essentially kind of road tested there at the Star Club. So you knew what you were going to get when you walked in. And if you if you walked in in 1964, 
and you knew Jerry Lewis was playing, then you knew especially what you were going to get. It was likely going to be an epic night of rock and roll, and it was. We're just so we're just so fortunate that it was recorded. You know what I mean? Because I'm sure he played great the night before. I forget the name of the venue uh, in Berlin. He played in the night before or two nights before, and I know he played again great day the next day or, or two days later. And who knows how great his shows were somewhere in Wisconsin the year before or the year after. But we're just so so lucky that that record was recorded. And that uh, we have we have that document now for the for for the rest of our lives. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me that the Beatles were really poorly recorded in the Star Club. Uh, they quit playing before um, the place was set up to record. Essentially, isn't that, isn't that that's a shame, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean, those, those Star Club albums are so disappointing and how thinly produced they are, and, and especially years ago, I would hear. And, you know, Lennon himself would say this, you know, part myth, but he would say the Beatles were at their best playing uh, in Hamburg in, in, on the Reaper Bond. And that all oh, you should have heard it then. That's when we were a real rock and roll band. And, and I, when I remember when I, when I first listened to that Star Club album when it came out, and this was a long time ago, I remember being so disappointed. They just sounded tinny. They didn't sound overpowering. They didn't sound like a great rock and roll band at all. But then you think, oh, just a couple years later, just oh, even a year later, or maybe two years later, there's Siggy Locke recording just with with instruments mic'd and a stereo mic placed in the in the audience to to capture that the, the ambiance. What a great, great muscular, you know, sinewy, textural rock and roll album we get. And oh boy, what I'd love to have heard the Beatles recorded that way there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the the poor recording quality when the Beatles recorded, and also the fact that they were at the very end of their last run at the Star yeah. Club and and were absolutely done with Hamburg. And I think Lennon also pointed out that the BBC recordings were the best place to hear the fierce young Beatles, and 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 you know the trove of those recordings that's come out in the last few years, I think, confirms his take. Also, the the Searchers. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but the Searchers recorded a really killer uh, live album at the Star Club. That's yeah, I have. Well worth seeking out for anybody who hasn't heard that. Um, but the 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 album itself, for all its reputation as this fierce, untamed live album, it's actually not the song order that was played. It was edited together from two nights of shows. That's right. I, and that's something I learned as I started writing the book. He uh, he played two sets that night, I think of 16 songs and or, or maybe more. And the album was, was called from those two uh, uh, um, set lists uh, by Siggy Locke, who um, who not only drew from the two set lists, but also kind of resequenced the album. I think really, really brilliantly too. Uh, and one of the tracks, well, two of the tracks, I think, well, down the line was recorded, but uh, there was a mic snafu in the beginning, so that wasn't included in the original album that came out later in, in, in CD reissues of the album. And Jerry also played uh, a version of "I'm on Fire." which was the single that he was essentially supporting uh, promoting i should say in 1964 it was one of his it was his most recent single on smash records and i don't think it's a great rock and roll record by any stretch in part because the way it was recorded and it's one of those records that really seems to try and and kind of capture that the kind of the real wild child quality of of of, of, of uh, lewis's son records which was fated to be impossible to do, of course, but I would have loved to have heard it in Star Club, but it was, uh, it was played, I think, but not recorded. Uh, but the album we get is with a re with a wholly resequenced, uh, album from the night, uh, that, that, yeah, that Jerry Lee actually played. Yeah. And so, and then the, the album is resequenced, but Ziggy Locke denies that anything was added in the studio later, that it was, that it was remixed, obviously, but not, um, 
re-recorded despite yep, denied that vehemently. Yeah, allegations contrary, but then it's released in Europe only, and it it doesn't come out in America until what the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I didn't hear it for the first time until the early nineties, uh, when Rhino Records reissued it on CD, uh, and the top of my head came off when I heard it. I couldn't believe that this thing had been sitting around for by that point almost twenty years. Or 30 years, I should say. Um, that's amazing now when I, when I think of it. Yeah, so it took a long time for mainstream audiences to to get to hear that record, which I think is, is a shame. Now, I don't know how, I don't know if if, uh, if Smash Records had had issued Live at the Star Club in 1964. I don't know what that would have done for Lewis's career. They did release two live albums by by, by Lewis in that era. Uh, neither of which is recorded as as well as Live at the Star Club, uh, to my ears anyway. And they didn't do much for Lewis's career, uh, you know, commercially. So I don't know what it would have done, but it, but it, it certainly was a was a shame that it took so long for audiences to hear it. Yeah, and and I think Jared Lee is one of the artists who's sort of been ill stirred by the volume of material that he recorded and not always at his best like sun records held onto his contract for many years after the commercial collapse well and like to what 63 64 mm-hmm. um and and clearly had no idea what to do with him but kept recording him and then licensed his stuff out such that when he's on Smash and Mercury later on, he's competing with himself because stuff from the Sun Vaults is coming out throughout the '60s and into the '70s. Right, but in the beginning that helped him because his his Mercury his Smash uh, country albums were so popular that when Shelby Singleton, his producer uh, or uh, who worked with him, uh, bought the, the 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 Sun recordings from Sam Phillips, he 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 kind of mined it as you do when you're sitting on a on a potential treasure trove. But for a while, both uh, Lewis's country records for smash and his, the reissues of his country songs he cut for for son that were had been in the vault they were both doing really really well in the commercial charts so on one hand you can say he was competing against himself for for quite a few years he was competing very well against himself yeah and and you're bringing up the transition to country that happened in the late 60s let's talk about that a little bit i mean jerry lee himself has sort of disavowed it later on that i would you know saying i was always a rock and roller and the material i cut for mercury suited me at the time as a way to get in through the back door because country DJs had been loyal. But you can hear in the music, I mean, he's a completely, absolutely brilliant country artist. Yeah, those records, those three, the three records that began his kind of resurgence as a hardcore honky-tonk uh, artist in the late 60s are, they're brilliant records. But not only among Jerry Lewis's best records, but I think there there's some of the some of the best country music cut in the late '60s and, and early '70s. I just think that Lewis is a, is a born contrarian. You know what I mean? I just think he he always dislikes being boxed or being labeled. And so when he found himself being embraced or not 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 entirely embraced by by country because he was uh, still not in the country music hall of fame. I don't know whether that's that that matters at all finally at the end of the day but it is kind of kind of silly i think and kind of shocking he famously swore or at least spoke hoarsely when he was on the uh the uh grand Ole opry yeah the grand Ole opry thanks so he was never quite embraced but even i think he was made uncomfortable by the by by the the inference that he was now a country artist 
as opposed to being both a country artist and a rock and roll artist. I think his ego was too big to handle that kind of narrow casting. And I think he always kind of led with this notion that he, there's no one else like him, that no one can do country and rock and roll as well as he can. So I think he felt a little bit labeled or boxed in and, and he rebelled in that way, which is, is actually quite characteristic and quite, quite typical of him. Yeah, and tell us about that Grand Ole Opry performance. I mean, he did more than Curse from the Stage. He he pretty much did a rock and roll set on the sacred stage. Of- <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, well, that was that was something that he was known to do at the time. Uh, he would play a country venue, but half of it would be rock and roll. Or he'd play a rock and roll venue, and half of it would be country, sometimes kind of pissing off the the fans that have come out for one or the other. So it's an, an entirely characteristic of him to do that. And on one, on one hand you can say, or one, one, one angle in that, into that is that he, he shot himself in the foot doing that, uh, that he wouldn't, he, you know, had to play both sides of, of, of the fence, but that's Jerry Lewis. I mean, that's, it would be inauthentic of him if he didn't do that. You know what I mean? And so it, it, one can decry that as a, as a, sacrilege thing to do with the Grand Ole Opry or that it was a commercial mistake for him to do that. But it's it's what Jerry Lewis does. He's never going to be tied down uh, by one's understanding of him or one's ability or one's desire to describe him in a, in a particular sort of narrow way. Uh, so that's just, that, that was very him. That was a very Jerry Lewis characteristic thing for him to do at that, at that night of the Opry. So I think we would be surprised if he hadn't done something like that. And uh, one one sort of theme that runs through the book is is as a Gen Xer like myself, you grew up kind of in a punk context, and your you the albums that you compare Live at the Star Club to are classic punk live documents like the Ramones' uh, Live in London or uh, the MC5's first album, and yet Jerry Lee never acknowledged or intersected with punk in any way. You talk about that as a missed opportunity. I mean, do you think that's just sort of Gen X punk fans wish, wish fulfillment, or do you think that there is Jerry Lee really a punk is the question? Yes, he is. There's no doubt in my mind that he is. Um, but I think in terms of his, his native uh, contrarian streak and his native sort of rebellious streak, I, I, I think, and following his own path, I think he is in terms of his temperament. Uh, I can't speak about his personal life, obviously, since I don't know the man. Uh, but but that that sort of what you might call a punk ethos in him has been severely compromised by his own choices. He made a lot of shitty records. He made he cut a disco version of uh, of his hits in the '80s that just is pretty ghastly to hear. He made a lot. He, he issued a lot of subpar records when he was drinking too much. Uh, so you can all of this to in in in, an, in his desire to sell records and 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 to be commercially viable. So how punk is that? Finally, you know. I mean, on one hand, you could say. Well, it's not very punk to always shoot for uh, the biggest commercial payday you can get. But on the other hand, it might be very punk to say, well, F you, I'm still going to cut the records I want to cut. If they don't sell, they don't sell. Uh, but the idea, I think I mentioned in the book that my dream was for Jerry Lewis to sit down with Nick Lowe and Dave Evans in the rock pile and just let it rip, you know, in a 12 hour recording session. That certainly is a wish fulfillment on my part because I love rock pile and I love Jerry Lewis and I would, would have loved to have seen what, what they might've come up with. It might've been terrible. He might've chosen the wrong songs. 
He might have been drinking too much during the session. Uh, Lowe and Edmonds, whoever's producing it, might have been too timid with them. He might have brought an attitude that, so who knows how it would have sounded. Um, and that's, that's what's, that, that, that's the problem with these sort of, like you say, wish fulfillment scenarios that we, that we imagine because you never know how something is actually going to turn out. But to answer your first question, I do think he's punk, but he's punk from a different era. And so it's, it makes a lot of sense that later, Errors and definitions of punk he might have um, he might have uh, not quite fit in with. Cool. And so you wrote a whole book about Jerry Lee live at the Star Club. But where do you rank it in his body of work? I mean, do you do you put the Sun Classic period first? Do you, and then the Star Club album, or, or or and then the country, or how do you, how do you write Jerry Lee's best work? Well, I, I, I can be as a, I can try and be as objective as I can, but I also have to. I lead with my taste, as we all do. I, I, but I think historically, his the first dozen or so, or maybe have a couple, you know, two dozen or so uh, records he cut down in uh, Memphis for some, whether they were released or not. I think that's his greatest music uh, because he was uh, charting new territory. He was, uh, as so many of the Stone artists were guided by by Sam Phillips and Jack Clement. They were really in, uh, in new territory, and they were they were learning and discovering and making surprises every day, surprising themselves too. And the music, when you listen to it, holds up just astonishingly well. I, I just I, I'm always amazed at how beautiful and how fresh and how how memorable those early Sun records sound. So they, I think that's, that, that body of is, is Jerry Lewis's greatest work, but I would put the performance as recorded at the star club in April 64, uh, very, very, very close to that. And I think his first couple of Sun, uh, I'm sorry, his first couple uh, of country records for smash uh, another place, another time. She even woke me up to say goodbye. Uh, uh, those are equally strong to the live album, but but it's really different kind of music. I think what's consistent to all of it is Jerry Lee's talent and his commitment and his his, his passion and his orneriness. Um, but if I had to rank him, it would be Sun, Star Club, and then those those trio of hardcore uh, uh, honky tonk records he made in the late sixties, early seventies. Really, really bunched close together. And uh, but it was down it was downhill from there, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean it was a, it's a pretty high peak, and you're not gonna. No. match uh, what he was doing in 57, 58 very often. And how do you, how do you assess Jerry Lee against his peers? Like at Jerry Lee at his peak versus little Richard at his peak. <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's, that's a tough question. I, I, I can't pick a winner there. Can you? <laughs> uh, no, I've got a, I've got a story. A friend of mine told me about Lemmy from Motorhead and, uh, and a record executive that he was dear friends with getting into such a voluble argument about Jerry Lee versus little Richard. Uh, the, the entire uh, danceateria in New York cleared out because they thought the guys were about to have a fist fight. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, culturally and historically, of course, uh, their 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 origins and their paths and their journeys are are so they're related, but they're also different. I mean, given race, given culture, given the privilege that that Jerry Lee Lewis was was afforded, uh, their their careers are, in some respects, difficult to compare. But in terms of just the pure talent and innate gifts of uh, of both Penman and, and and Lewis. I, I they're, they're they're side by side equals as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I have to agree there. Although I would give Charlie points because I don't think Little Richard uh, ever matched the 
the late period country comeback. There's no analog in Little Richard's career. That's true. He made some great records for OK in the mid '60s, uh, but they were records that, although they were really they were well recorded, he had a hot band behind them. They weren't breaking new ground for Richard uh, as the the smash country records did for Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, especially as we get further away from it, it's really remarkable that you can think, you know, like there are certain actors you associate with more than one role and, and how rare that is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, I mean, iconic roles. I mean, it's, we can do the same with Jerry Lee Lewis. You can think of his son rec recordings and then his late sixties smash recordings as uh, equally great, but they're both charting different territory, although related territory also, but he was, he, he mastered both of them. And you're right. Little Richard didn't, 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 didn't have that, that second sort of, uh, uh, career with him though. And and what about uh, Jerry's big rival, the one that haunted his dreams, Elvis Presley? I mean, Elvis obviously the, had his classic son period, then has the 60s pop period, and then the big comeback. And so I'd probably give the edge to Elvis there, just in terms uh, of volume of, of great music. But the white hot heat at Jerry Lee's peak, I, I don't think Elvis ever quite touched. No, no. How could you? <laughs> I mean, I, I, the, the, how many cliches do you need? You know, to, can you use to describe young Jerry Lee Lewis? But he really did break the mold. I mean, there really was. But same with Elvis. There really was such remarkable about that period. There was no one like Elvis, really, and there was really no one like Chuck Berry, no one like Jerry Lee Lewis, et cetera. And it's it's remarkably potent when you think of it. Um, so to compare or to quality, to you know, comparing quality to one versus the other, I think again, it's it's. Both Elvis and, and Jerry Lee Lewis were so remarkable at what they did with their talents and where they went that it's it's hard to compare the two. I would agree, though, having never seen, of course, either of them in their peak. Uh, I'd certainly pay. I think I'd pay money to see if I had to choose in 1958 who I'd see live. I would see Jerry Lee over Elvis. Yeah, of course. In '56, Elvis had the field to himself, so it's kind of true. Uh, yeah, Jerry Lee came 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 he's slightly second wave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, well, um, awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's It's been fun. And I um, hope to have you back again. Thanks. I was, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate will hold his first telepathic interview to discuss Nankering with the Rolling Stones by James Felge, the man who lived with Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Brian Jones in 1963. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 